Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Other Woman and the Wife. Today, I'm joined by Dave Capozzi. I am a former evangelical pastor, now a teacher. I have three children and I spend my time teaching, being with my kids and making content. Dave and I collided on TikTok maybe about a year ago. Dave and I have been supporting each other's content. I really love all of the deconstruction content that he points out around systemic racism. And I just love the way that he thinks about the world around him and the way that he impacts the world around him. So Dave, I'd like to start by asking, do you have any personal experience with infidelity? Well, yeah. Yeah. So multiple. Okay. But only in that it has been proposed to me a couple of times. And I was accused of it <laughs> another time. I'll do the I'll do the proposed infidelity. When I was first becoming a pastor, a former coworker of mine and I went out for drinks. I was supposed to meet up with a, a few people. This was back in 2014, I believe. And this person expressed to me that the whole time they worked with me, they had a, a crush on me and basically was like ready to leave their husband and two children. Oh, wow. To be in a relationship with me. And I was just like, I mean, this is a very, very attractive person. I really enjoyed them, which is why, like, I wouldn't have gone out of my way to meet up again for, you know, to catch up had I not enjoyed this person. And the other, you know, I thought there were going to be other people. There ended up not being. It just, just was this person. So that was very unexpected. And also, I quickly did not acquiesce. You know, I'm just, I just didn't accept not, the invite, huh? Not going down that road. I didn't. I didn't <laughs> to to blow up my life. No. And then when I was a pastor again, I was accused of having an affair with someone that had become a friend of mine in the congregation. And we were very close, like best friend level talking a lot. And so people threw around, you know, like you must be sleeping together, which we weren't. But we did have, you know, a very strong emotional connection that as you and I have talked about before, my my marriage couldn't handle, their mm -hmm. marriage couldn't handle, and ultimately made it so that that was too much. It was not the reason that I eventually ended up leaving my wife, which was in 2019, but it was sort of like the straw. It was kind of like, you know what, I, this is just too much now. And not being trusted and all that st sort of stuff, it, it just was too much. And I And because of that friendship, I realized some things that I wouldn't accept within my marriage anymore and like treatment of myself and ways of value my needs. Um, mm. So that, that relationship, while I wouldn't categorize it as the way people typically think of infidelity, it was a way of identifying what wasn't working in my life. It was one of the outgrowths of that. So, yeah. So that's a couple examples. Oh, well, there was also one detail that you had shared with me previously about that experience that I thought was so interesting. And I don't know if you're willing to share it here, but was that person, the person that you had the emotional connection with, heterosexual? Oh, <laughs> I was waiting for, no, 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 she, she no, nope. She would identify as bisexual. I thought she was gay. Yeah. I think that is so interesting because, yeah. it, and the reason why I think it's so interesting because I almost think that it's more acceptable for 
marriage to end an infidelity if is by way of discovering your sexual identity. And uh, so yeah. I I get a lot of I get a lot of listeners who are like I fell in love I'm married to a man and I fell in love with a woman and I think that that's a really confusing place to be if you have been conditioned to believe yes. that you are one thing and you're actually something else. So I I, I loved that yeah. little piece of it, your experience because I was like man <laughs> that's you're Isn't not that alone. Isn't like the truth across the board? What? No, but isn't that like you, I feel like when we talk about things like this, it's like I realized something within myself that I maybe didn't allow myself to see, whatever it is, that sort of leads you to a place of discovery and curiosity. Maybe you're not wanting it to be that kind of a thing or that disruptive, but I feel like that is a pretty common experience right now that, you, that you've talked about. I listen a lot to Glennon Doyle's podcast and that, you know, is their story a bit. So yeah, there's just so much of that happening now. There really is. And I think it's like really reflective of the human condition and what we have done as humans to our fellow human. The expectation yes. of, uh, you know, this is who you're supposed to be and then you're in your life and all of a sudden it doesn't align well with you at all. So I really do appreciate you opening up about that piece of your story because I think that that is more often the case than not. Can you tell me a little yeah, bit about sure. what the experience of marriage and being in the church and what all that was like for you? I got married to my high school sweetheart. I put that in quotes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, within the first couple of months of our relationship, she was already pushing me away, be like very sort of abusive language. And like, and she told me later on, you know, still in high school and then in, through college, like I was just testing to see if you'd stay, but it was pretty brutal stuff. But I stuck around because I kind of was used to this. I had this way of attaching that was sort of anxious and I would do whatever I needed to do to please the person that I was in relationship with. I was very much a people pleaser. And also I had this notion growing up in the white evangelical church that you save yourself to mar for marriage. And what happened was I didn't with her. So for, in my mind, well, we're married. We're getting married one way or another. So I did. And that was in 2003. And it was just kind of like, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even a question. It wasn't really like, am I so, am I in love with this person? Do we have similar interests? Do we see the world the same way? That was way down the line. I was 22 years old when I got married. And I want to say just as a caveat, no shade to this, to my ex. She has her own journey through this. And, you know, the, the pain of having to go through all of this is very real. And I don't really even love using the word abuse, but the way that we sort of related to each other was mutually not meeting each other's needs, I will say. And so just that became sort of the, just you flow into it. There wasn't a whole lot of thought. There wasn't a whole lot in terms of connection. That was that thing that now I feel like is, I wouldn't be able to live without. It just was what we did. And we had a great life from all, for all intents and purposes. We had great friends. We did the church thing. We were both sort of like well-respected people, like from the outside thought we were like the greatest couple. And inside, 
it, it took quite a while for me to, to come to a place of realizing that, well, I don't feel whole in this relationship. I don't feel seen and I'm constantly being blamed for why our relationship isn't great. And so it just was this, like, we're not meeting each other's needs. It looks great, but it's not that great. We were almost like siblings after a while. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were married. We're still actually, we're still going through the divorce pr- process. It's 20 years now. It's, it's been a long journey. Yeah. It's interesting that word abuse, right? It has all of this embedded negativity inside of it. And people are so afraid to use that word. And I think one of the things that I've been really mulling over is that abuse is, if you simplify it, it's the abnormal use, the abnormal use of Mm. love, the abnormal use of marriage, all of that. And so I, th- yeah. it's really, it's interesting kind of watching you react to, you know, you even saying that word out loud and being like, wait, hold on, no shade to my ex. And I'm like, yeah, of course, we're not throwing right. any shade at anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Disco- <laughs> discovering why infidelity exists and what we can learn from it. And I'd love to go into, you know, kind of your thoughts on How does marriage or the expectations that we assign around marriage change the existence of the relationship? You know, you had touched on Mm. purity culture and uh, that that it didn't really matter because we were going to get married anyways. What do you think? What do you think about how marriage changes the relationship between people? Oh, that's such a great question that, you know, within my own experience of the two become one sort of within evangelicalism, this is the notion that like, we're, I'm no longer Dave, I'm us. And so there's this like forsaking. And that is just a general thing that I have dealt with, with deconstruction of forsaking yourself. You're supposed to crucify yourself for the sake of, you know, this relationship, this community. And so that's what marriage is. And that expectation of property ownership almost that i am no longer mine she is no longer hers we are each other's and then there comes those expectations of can you even communicate with a person that is the opposite gender all sorts of jealousy becomes at play these just things that we take for granted that that's the way you're supposed to function in a marriage that ultimately if we were we are to analyze all of those ideas or behaviors are so unhealthy mm-hmm. to to think about owning another person to to get so wrapped up in is that person thinking of me the same way are they doing that it's just all those expectations feel now to me so oppressive so like the way that i think of marriage is this cage that doesn't allow for the the sort of flowering of each individual the the like people to grow into who they might be that's kind of the way I see it at least the way I experienced it I remember like in my own marriage my first marriage really feeling a strong draw towards like enrich flourish Mm. all of these words Mm. and I was like how do I get that for myself as an individual while I'm inside of this relationship that isn't satisfying me. And it was really difficult for me because the expectation was like, if I was just a better wife, then I would be fulfilled. And uh, that, that was so far from the actual truth. 
And uh, I'm so glad that I was able to remove myself from that attached idea. You know, I think a lot of suffering comes down to attachments to unhealthy ideas that we have been conditioned to Mm. adopt. And uh, it's so interesting how marriage really does, you know, making that transition from like we're dating to now we're married. And how do you function as an individual when all you're doing is trying to die to yourself? Oh, yes. And expectations generally do not serve us well. Uh, They are actually the source of disappointment. Yeah, exactly. Yep. (sighs) Dave, you touch a lot on deconstruction in your content. And I know that this is like a buzzword that's floating around the internet. I'm certainly introducing it into my own content. Can you give us a little bit of your understanding of what deconstruction is and why it's important? I think that literally everyone does it. I don't think that it is something that is new to our generation. What is new to our generation is deconversion, but deconstructing is essentially you have, by virtue of being a human being born into this world, you have inherited some systems of thought, some biases, some beliefs, and then you just kind of oftentimes, depending on your age and what you're exposed to, build on those things. And at some point or another, typically, you know, early, mid-20s, you start to take away some of those pieces. And deconstruction is essentially just that. It's just sort of taking a look at some of the things that you've just had handed to you and wondering, does that still fit? Oftentimes, it's a very painful process because these things give us a feeling of safety and security, which is literally everything that it is to be human, is to feel safe and secure, which is why I I am so drawn to your content because so much of a marriage is about that. It's just about that like, okay, this is the thing that makes me feel safe and secure. But once you start to look at it, is it doing that or is it causing you more harm than good? And only you can answer that. And I think that's what deconstruction is. What has happened within sort of white evangelicalism is this movement of ex-evangelicalism that has been a move away from that's actually not all that dissimilar from our boomer predecessors who a lot of them the sort of hippie generation Mm -hmm. grew up catholic or some more sort of rigid dogmatic expression of christianity to a more sort of like jesus Pentecostal spirit type Mm -hmm. baptism. There was all all this talk around like being reborn or that happened in the 60s and 70s. And we're the children of that generation that raised us to now deconvert ourselves. So it's like this really interesting thing to watch culturally happen. And that's why, you know, you and I had this conversation that I I don't want to reject everything that was sort of like put before me because of, I know that's just the natural thing that we do. And so just holding on to figuring out what does faith mean while I understand that this container that I was handed doesn't necessarily work for me anymore. Yeah, totally. The Realizing that the container no longer works is one of the most, I think, fear-invoking existences I have had on the planet. And it's, Mm. wait a second, I thought I completely understood how this whole thing was supposed to work. And 
I don't like the admission, <laughs> the acknowledgement of like, I don't know what's going on here and I don't know why I don't feel safe or secure in my own existence mm. Mm. and being able to yes. feel free enough to speak your own thoughts and give voice to your feelings. I early on, mm. I remember telling people I was like the source of infidelity is self neglect. And yes. I feel like nobody really understood that. And I was like, if you're the only one with access to your thoughts and feelings and you're not giving them voice, what do you call that? I think right. that is self-neglect, <laughs> right? If we are yes, made up of our sure thoughts and is. our feelings, yes. then yeah. And I remember I, I would love to oh. hear you just um, wax poetic on where do you think our thoughts and feelings come from? Oh, that's an interesting one. You know. I have become a big fan of a couple of things that help me process who I am, okay? So one thing is this sort of teaching around nonviolent communication that Mar Marshall Rosenberg came up with, I believe in the 60s, or maybe it was before that, but it, it gives you this sort of framework for understanding what's happening for your, your own needs and your own feelings. So it helps you to identify the things that are going on with you. And I found that very useful. And also the Enneagram, which became very popular once again and was something that I had to do as a, a as a pastor. I had to get my number. I had to figure out my core fears and motivations and all that sort of stuff. I found those really helpful tools to understand myself better. Now, looking at myself and who I was raised to be, the the environment in which I was raised, which was you know, in New York City to a couple of young parents who had a really rocky marriage in a religious institution that demanded certainty and demanded allegiance and sort of right ways of thinking and behaving. I, I can, I think, identify on top of sort of epigenetics, the things that were handed down to me that happened in my, in previous generations I can also sort of point to, well, the religion, the family dynamics, the dynamics with my brothers, all of those things, the environment considered, it's all, I hate the question of nature versus nurture. It's obviously all of it. Mm. It's like all happening all at once. And I find, I love that question because it's so important to grapple with where did these things originate and how do they play out now? So yeah, for me, just anxiety just is such a major part of the way I think about my childhood. Mm -hmm. And there's still a lot of child healing work to do. Yeah. I've heard people throw around that term about the inner child and healing and all of that. Oh, yeah. And it's really funny because I took, I think before this whole business venture that I'm on, I took a very logical approach to understanding why I behave the way I behave. And I leaned more into the psychology pieces of it. Yeah. And uh, now I find myself going into other schools of thought around, uh, you know, thoughts and feelings. And I've been working to rid myself of personal bias so that I can better appreciate mm. the world around me. And uh, I've arrived yeah. at thoughts and beliefs are a culmination of our past experiences, things that have been indoctrinated into us. And if we don't take the time to assess assess exactly that, how do we know where we stand? Exactly. I think that is a very scary thing to look at yourself that way. Mm -hmm. It's a scary thing. You know, I, I 
I think that's what more often than not the source of conflict is people that are unwilling to wrestle with what triggers them. I have a great story to tell you that just happened tell connected me. to this. I was at a party a couple weekends ago. It might have been last weekend. I don't remember. Time gets very fu- fuzzy. But it was my sister-in-law's 40th birthday, which included my ex-wife because they're best friends and her boyfriend and all of her friends. And so I'm like, I'm not thrilled about going to this, but I'll go. I'll, I'll show up. It's my, it's my sister-in-law. So, of course, there's some people that I haven't seen in over four years who I was very close with, who are my ex's friends. And so my ex texts me in the morning. She's like, hey, what time are you going to be there asking for a friend? I roll. And I'm like, you can let your friend know that I'm just going to be there. And they might have to look at my face, but they won't have to interact with me. They'll be okay. And so I get there and sure enough, I know who she's talking about. But my whole way there, I'm preparing in my mind. What are the, what am I going to do if they like pour a drink over my head or do something, you know? And, and sure enough, after two hours of being there, this person walks through the dance floor of this like small bar, pulls my arm and just, she, she goes, fuck you. And then just keeps walking. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I just turn around and I keep talking to the people I was talking to. And, and apparently people saw it and they talked to me the next day. Oh, she's so awful. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm so glad that I prepared myself for whatever that was. But ultimately, <laughs> she, she has some healing to do, right? That's her stuff. That's her shit. It's not yeah. mine to carry. And ultimately, whatever my story or my experiences trigger in someone else, I used to carry that shit. Now I'm like, well, that's, I hope that you look at that. I hope that you look at whatever is coming up for you, analyze it and and do something to heal from it if it's hurting you. But that has nothing to do with me, even though it is directed at me. It was great. That is fucking great. I fucking love it whenever <laughs> people attempt to make fools of me and then they actually make fools of themselves. Right. Because it, it it's the emotional dysregulation that is obviously at play in yes in that story that you just shared. And I love how you chose to respond rather than react in that moment, because certainly there are some dysfunctional coexistence of family members where that situation could have gone completely awry. Yeah. And sure. uh, so I commend you for being well, able to you. <laughs> do that. And it's funny, you anticipated something that would like the way that you anticipated it, right? Was that like they would pour a drink over your head or something that was humiliating to you. Right. When right. actually what they did was humiliating for them. Exactly. Anything that they would have done yeah. would have been. And ultimately I, I have been through the ringer as my girlfriend could attest over the last f- four years, because I was a part of, I was a pastor and I was, I was a part of a denomination that knew I was I was also going through severe depression and a lot of it was linked to not being able to punch through the all the confines of what my world was and feeling very stuck and so I got therapy my denomination paid for all kinds of shit to send me out to Chicago to get me all kinds of testing and I went through this process of listening to people who were hurt by my decision to leave my wife and to leave the church and that for me was something that 
while I was willing to sit with and listen to them because these are people that felt deep pain, I also couldn't own that. That wasn't, you know, like as much as there's this view of you're the pastor and you're, you know, you're responsible for X and Y. I'm like, I'm not. My job is simply to be me and to, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it in a healthy way anymore. And so I've been in this journey of just not owning other people's stuff, which also allows me to be a lot more free when I do and speak out about things that are unjust. It just is not about that sort of need for uh, validation or trying to to like rescue people. It's simply, this is right for me. This speaks to a need or a value within me. So it's something yeah, I've had practice for, for a while. Man, that almost seems like they were trying to shame you into submission. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> they wouldn't do that. Oh, come on. Would they? Abnormal it's use? <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to use that now. That's good. What do you, you know what I was thinking about heading in, into this was how infidel and infidelity are like the same word. I never put those words together. Before. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you talk about oh, this yeah. all the time, but mm-hmm. like I, I don't use those words very often. So it's interesting. What the fuck does infidel even mean? It just means someone that chooses to not adhere to their religion that they were given. A person who does not believe in religion or who adheres to a religion other than one's own. Yes. A crusade against infidels and heretics. Yep. Count me in. Yep. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Count me in. <laughs> Call me what you want, you know? Ah, that's so good. <laughs> it's so good. If you are the other woman in your relationship and you love this podcast, you would love the other women community. The other women community is a membership program designed to help other women just like you reclaim their relationship with themselves, and heal from their affair. We provide a safe and supportive environment for you to open up and talk about your experiences. We give you the tools and resources you need to grow into an authentic, empowered individual. If you're ready to take the next step in your healing journey, head on over to theotherwomanandthewife.com backslash community to learn more about the membership and all it has to offer. All right, let's jump back into the episode. Dave, uh, this is kind of an assumption, but hopefully you can yeah. clarify it. I'm sure. sure that there was a lot of, I'll say, fear and anxiety around your decision to leave. How did you get to a place where you were decided? It almost felt like there wasn't a choice anymore, to be honest. And I think that's where a year previous to when I finally did leave my wife, I had gotten to a place where I was self-harming or or trying to self-harm in some pretty serious ways. That's when I started therapy and I continued on. I I told my church two weeks after I tried to self-harm that I did. And guess what I did the following week? I preached again. Like I was not stopping. And so because of that, I got ordained the year that I left my wife. It was crazy shit. I had just gotten to a place where I realized I can't take it anymore. There's this just too much. And there was this event that happened where my wife had confronted me and my friend. And it just was just like, I told her that night, I said, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive you for this. And meanwhile, you know, we were going through marital counseling. We were going through the process. 
the counselor was was seeing how she was identifying the things that my ex-wife was doing that were prohibiting me from coming closer to her. <laughs> That's sort of the language that she was talking about. And yet my ex-wife continued to put the blame on me for the reasons that we were disconnected. And it was just this combination of I'm to blame, not not recognizing how it was that she wasn't able to sort of recognize what was going on within change me, her behavior. Was, yeah. And, and I honestly, like, that's the part where I'm like, she wasn't going to, I knew that she wasn't going to, I just knew. Um, and that's what was painful for me for quite, for a little while. It was honestly, the realization started in 2014 for me. My father died in 2014 on his deathbed. I noticed within him because his marriage to my mother was so painful. The two of them, it just was like, I don't, I don't want that on my deathbed. I don't want that. And so I started like this little kernel of, you know, what does that mean? Started to work out within me for the next five years. And ultimately I got pushed too far. I pushed myself. I stuffed myself down too much where I just was like, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. And it wasn't the most healthy thing. And I don't know what that would have looked like. The things that I do lament are around sort of not being able to leave in the most healthy, affirming way. But people are going to get hurt in these kinds of things. That's going to happen. I have a lot and of compassion for what you just said, though, about yeah. you feeling like you couldn't have made peace or left in the most healthy of way. I'm sorry, Dave, you weren't given the skill set to do that. Yeah, You didn't have you. the information. Yeah. You didn't have the tools, right? And so I think yes. that there's a lot of uh, compassion to be had for ourselves when it comes mm. to this didn't go the way that I wanted it to. It's Of course it didn't. There was so much more yeah. at play than just you. Yeah, you know? that's so true. Thank you for that. I'm sorry to hear <sighs> about your dad. Yeah, thank you. That was a, a, a hit me a lot more than I anticipated. He died fairly quickly from pancreatic cancer. So, you know, it's just one of those things that you don't realize how much that's going to fundamentally change everything. And it does. It did. And so everything is sort of through this lens of life is short, you know, go after what matters the most to you. And uh, yeah. A year after D-Day, I had written my ex apologizing mm -hmm. profusely. And right. I had said to him, uh, I think there came a point in my own personal existence where I realized that I was waiting on somebody else to save me. I was waiting on God to save me. Mm. And then I realized it was all up to us. So good. And uh, that was one of those realization moments that definitely came after a struggle with death. I've had very close family members die. And I think that it is in death we find life. Yes. And it almost sounds like in the death of your father, you actually unearthed a new life for yourself. And I think that is such a beautiful place to be in life. And what a gift for your dad to give you that. The, the motivation almost to do mm. what was necessary for your own existence. Oh, I love that. You got like, yeah, little it's spiritual so teacher in you, there, Chelsea. <laughs> Do I? So yeah, for sure, for sure. That's good shit. That's good shit. <laughs> oh, 
yeah. I freaking love I I and you know, as I have these conversations with people, they are so isolated by something traumatic that has happened in their life. And it wasn't necessarily something that they invoked on themselves. It was given to them. Yes. As is, I mean, you know, it's yeah. the, the school that I work at is a therapeutic school. And so like so much of what the way we view it is through the lens of trauma-informed care. And I just, you know, look at literally everyone that way. It's harder with some than others, right? Yes. To, to Right. But to understand that what who you are is, I love that you asked the question about feelings and needs, where they come from. Who you are is a collection of so many things that you didn't choose to be or experience. And to mm -hmm. be, I believe, to be human is to experience trauma. And many don't have the tools to work through that shit. And so when we're coming together at, you know, middle age and someone's got these entrenched viewpoints that are like, what the fuck? Like, how am I supposed to interact with you? Like that curiosity and compassion is so essential if we want any hope of moving beyond that, like bumping into each other at all times. So I, I just love, I love that. Tell me more about this trauma informed school that you work at. I think, uh, you know, the, I'll say education system is turning over a new leaf in the way that they approach a lot of humanness. Yeah. Uh, I know that with my own kids, there's a lot of, uh, you know, themes of mindfulness that are coming around and I'm all about it because it, it really does help them become more self-sufficient individuals. Tell me more. Yeah. So essentially it's a, it's a therapeutic school for students that within their own districts weren't getting the services that they needed. And so we've got a counselor for each student the school's about 50 students. We got six counselors. So each student has a counselor. And and then just like our classes are smaller, we talk often about, you know, meeting the students sort of where they're at rather than the behaviors they're exhibiting. And so they each get this sort of individualized care that you'd hope any kid would get, right? That That doesn't often yeah. happen in public school settings. And so it's just really thinking about, well, you know, three times a week we meet as staff and we talk about, you know, this student had this happen at home. And so just be aware that this might happen. It's beautiful. I mean, it, it's beautiful. And I just think about my kids and I wish they could experience the same thing in school. And they don't, most definitely are not. Now there mm -hmm. are other challenges and all sorts of things, but it's such a beautiful thing to be able to think about. I, you know, in my head, I can think about this student, what's going on in their life during the day and and make sure that if I see a behavior I'm not just, oh, how dare you act that way? You're just like, oh, okay, that that probably yeah. is the result of them not sleeping last night. Okay, so now what? You know, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I really do love that. I love meeting yeah. people right where they're at. Yes. Instead of coming down on them with this hammer of how dare you. Right, how could you? And uh, I, yeah, and it's if you're talking with adults who haven't been given the information and the tools in order to uh, progress in the way that they respond to certain situations. They are just grown kids with money. Yes. yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Who have just about the same skills that a 15 year old does. The One of the most, right. I had this conscious parenting person on the podcast. Her name is Joy Merrily. 
look her up on TikTok. She talks about this a lot that, you know, you look at a kid and you see their behavior and then you, you just instantly, you know, we're yelling at children, we're telling them what not to do. We're talking to them in a way we would never speak to another adult. And we're expecting what out of that experience? You know, like we know how sensitive we are and yet we vent our shit without like thinking about how that's landing on children. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things to me now, having gone through my own healing journey and thinking about how I parent my children now, is that I am responsible for the way that I react to their normal growth and development as a human being. That the things that they exhibit are normal. Their rejection of my ideas, their whatever it is, is normal. And I can get pissed. Or I can just be like, oh, that's interesting. It's, you know, and and encourage them in that. And when I'm when I'm that way, when I have that posture, they're much more open and willing to come to me and talk to me about some of those things rather than seeing me as impeding their growth. And so, yeah. Oh, so for that. me, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to relationships that I can control, not so social media is a different ball game, but when it comes to interactions that are real in my best self. That's the approach that I'm taking. I love that. I absolutely love that. And I will go check out Joy Merrily, right? As we're getting ready to finish up uh, this conversation, I think one of the questions that comes to mind for me is um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why is the decision to to divorce so difficult? Mm. Well, part I guess apart from legal reasons, which it is a very difficult process, everyone has different needs and different ways of approaching conflict. You know, I know some people who, this is why I think the Enneagram is so helpful. If anyone knows, like the nine is like the peacemaker and they're just never going to advocate for their own needs to a point where it's just ends up getting so unhealthy for them. So it depends on the motivations for a person. Some people might be worried about what what other people think of them. Some people might feel like they're worried about the stability of their children. Some people might be worried about their job or or what it will cost them. Everyone has different reasons. For me, it was the the reason came down to like I don't matter. It came down to I my what my needs are aren't even on the table. I don't even know what my needs. What are you talking about? So a a, yeah. a complete refusal to reckon with your own needs and desires because those things are are bad or harmful. That could be a reason too. So for me, it came down to I don't well, also not wanting to hurt someone, right? Like you do, even if yeah. you're in a marriage that's tough, like their love is like confusing. And so I not wanting to hurt people, friends, not wanting to mess up your social structures. It's all, there's so much that comes with a divorce. And because our society is sort of built on this nuclear family thing, you're literally throwing all of that out the window to start a new life. And it's, it's painful. That's, that's my own perspective on it. I tell a lot of my clients, I say, the anticipation of great change is usually much more difficult than mm. the actual change itself. 
It's all of the anxiety of leading up. How will this impact everybody else? How will this? And then once you really do recenter and focus yourself on yourself and you're like, nope, I got to go. I got to remove myself from this existence. This existence does not satisfy me. And then it's logistics from there. Right. Exactly. Well, Dave, this was a lovely conversation. An amazing podcast episode that I cannot wait to release. Are there any final thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners? I just think keep listening to conversations that push you to feel really unsettled. Because the only time that we grow is when we're unsettled and there's a disruption. And if you want growth, then it's going to require all sorts of that stuff. So that's life now. I'm constantly unsettled and it feels great.